I started the recruiting process in December, and it wasn't until maybe about April that I had all the spots filled on the trip. Mm. Even though the prospect of visiting Spain was so interesting and intriguing to me, mm -hmm. that's not necessarily, you know, Americans are, I don't know, we, we're not that interested in actually going to Spain. It's not a place that we really mm. think of. It's like, you know, oh, let me go there. So it really took like, um, you know, just painting the picture for folks. Yeah. Um, and then for Japan, when that time came around, I think the, the location itself is Japan. Right. You know, <laughs> students exciting. Were, it, it was it was instant. Um, but I hope and believe, I would like to believe, that part of that, too, was because students saw that it was real. Mm -hmm. um, that what we had achieved the year before, that it could be done and that I don't even just your swagger about it changes, right? At first, it's like, mm -hmm. well, what we're planning to do. And then it's like, no, so what we're doing is... Yeah, what we're going you know, to do, for sure. Right, you know? <laughs> Welcome to Young, Gifted, and Abroad, perspectives on studying abroad from past and present students of color. My name is Danielle, and I'm so excited to be able to talk to you today because today I have my friend Eric, affectionately known by the people close to him as Bijon, as the guest. Eric is an English teacher, has been teaching for 17 years now, and he started his career in New York City, which is also where he trained to become a teacher. And he finished his undergraduate degree uh, a year early, and so he figured it was time to reward himself. And also, he was inspired by a certain acquaintance that he knew around that time to go to Spain. So he spent a gap year in Spain, split it between Madrid and Barcelona, and he was teaching English as a foreign language in both of those places. Had a phenomenal time, which you'll hear him talk about. And then, uh, at the end of that gap year, he returned to New York City to begin his full-time teaching career, and he's been in New York City ever since. Specifically, for the vast majority of his career, he's been teaching at a high school in an area of Brooklyn known as Brownsville. And it's known as a disadvantaged area, and people might have disparaging or dismissive things to say about it, but Eric believes in his community, he believes in his high school, and he believes in his students, which is why in 2016, he had the idea to start an initiative that came to be known as Brownsville Abroad, where he takes a group of students on an educational trip to a different country in the world each time. So in 2017, he took a group of students to Spain, of course, and then 2018 took another group to Japan, and that's around the time that I first heard about him. You'll hear us discuss that. And then in 2019, uh, he wasn't able to go that year, but he was, as usual, incredibly involved and hands-on in the organizing of a trip for students to South Africa. So we talked about Eric's gap year and how that, along with a certain occurrence involving a Broadway play, inspired Eric to begin Brownsville Abroad. And we also got into um, a lot of the details of how Brownsville Abroad works, you know, how it's planned and organized, how they figure out what students get to go, and also how they choose each destination and 
what kind of support Eric has in putting all this together because he is very quick to acknowledge that he's not a one-man show and he gives credit where credit is due. How they fundraise. This fundraising is a huge part of it, of course. Eric is the leader, but his students are incredibly involved in contributing to all the different phases of each trip and each campaign that they do. And then also, of course, the pandemic threw a wrench in their plans for 2020 and 2021, but they are hoping to get back out there again with two trips in 2022 hopefully. And so you'll hear Eric talk about where they'll be going, which is really exciting. So you're in for a really in-depth, really thought-provoking conversation today. Um, Eric is a very passionate person and you will hear that when he talks about his work um, as a teacher and of course his work with Brownsville Abroad as well. And lastly, I just want to say that... I want to say uh, a huge thank you to Eric because while we were recording this interview, I was having mic issues and so the recording actually got interrupted twice and thankfully we were able to get back on track. Um, Of course that was really inconvenient and kind of embarrassing but (laughs) Eric just stuck with it and was very patient and understanding and everything worked out. I was able to put everything together for this episode that you hear now, but I just want to thank Eric once again for being such a good sport about it. Really appreciate your patience and understanding. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with my friend, Eric Jordan. Well, now that that's been resolved, uh, I wanted to say yeah. <laughs> um, hello. Nice to meet you, Mr. Jordan. Um, how are you doing today? I'm cool. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good to hear. I'm really glad that you agreed to be a guest on the show. You know, you've done a lot of amazing work with your students and, and the trips that you have um, have taken them on. So I'm really excited to learn more about that from you directly. Yeah. But uh, before we get into all that, though, why don't we get started with you introducing yourself a bit, if you don't mind? Why, sure. Um, so, a couple of things about me. I, I guess I'll start with um, a little bit, a tiny bit about my upbringing. So, I'm uh, originally, well, okay, so I was born in New York City. Uh, I grew up in Georgia, in a small, small city in Georgia called Norcross. Hmm. And um, I lived in Georgia from age four to age 18, you know, my formative years, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, if someone asks me where I'm from, I will, I will tell you Georgia, but I've lived most of my life in New York City and I've been back here since college. I came up, um, I came back up in 2000 to do my undergraduate studies at New York University. I, after doing that, I took a gap year. Uh, spent that time in Spain. I was there for about 10 months or so. Mm. And then, uh, then after that, it was time for me to start my career. You know, I, I was trained to be a teacher. I studied secondary English education and I started my career in 2004. Mm. Um, and then, you know, that's kind of, that's where we are now. So 
that's uh, that's me, um, Bijon Eric Jordan. You can feel free, of course, to call me Eric. Please, no need to call me Mr. Jordan. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just a habit because you know you're a teacher, so I just get into right. that mode of like Mr. Sure, Jordan. But I'm not. But I'm not your teacher. <laughs> right. 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 So. <laughs> yeah. No, Eric is fine. You know, it's family. Family calls me Bijon, right? But uh, most people, like my wife and everybody, you know, most people that that I know outside of my family call me Eric. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. You're welcome to call me that. Um, you know, that's me generally, you know, family man. I mentioned I have a wife. Uh, we've been married. Oh, our anniversary is coming up on Sunday. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So that'll be 12 years, um, that we will have been married and, um, we have two children. We have a three-year-old boy. We have a nine-year-old girl. Um, we are foster parents. Our son is a foster child and our Mm. daughter is biological and, I think that that paints pretty that paints a pretty decent picture right there. Yes, it does. It definitely does. Um, yeah. So you have all the work you do as a teacher and with the trips and stuff, and then you also have your own family. So it's like you're really, or you know, it seems to me like you're really community oriented. You know, hmm. you have all these different roles to fill and these different um, circles that you move in. So yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really great. And that, and you actually answered one of the questions I had, because I know you said you, um, you did a gap year right. in Spain, and I didn't know if that had led you to teaching English or if that was already like part of your plan. Um, but as you said, you had trained to become an English teacher already, and then you yes. ended up doing your gap year. So, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. As far as Spain goes, you know, um, can you tell me a bit about where in Spain you were and, and what inspired you to do a gap year? Sure. Um, so I'll st- well, I'll start with what inspired me to do the gap year. Um, kind of like how my personality works. How I don't know. I don't. I don't even know why I am the way I am. But um, <laughs> the kind of person where when I if I have an idea that something about that idea really moves me or or it just seems like a fantastic idea that it's full of possibility or it's inspiring or whatever. Mm-hmm. then I find that idea to be pretty irresistible. And I'm sometimes willing to be totally unreasonable to make, to bring that into reality, whatever that thing is. Mm. So I worked as a tutor in a, in a high school in the lower East side of Manhattan. Um, I got that job when I was 18. I started at NYU and then I saw an opportunity to become a tutor somewhere. I said, that sounds, that's perfect. Cause mm. that's already what I'm into. I want to start, you know, so this is a great way for me to learn how to, get somebody to understand something that they don't already understand. Yeah. So I'm working in this job as a tutor. And um, I think it might have been the second year, actually, when I was 19, uh, still working in this school. And my uh, immediate supervisor, my boss or whatever, was like, he was this graduate student, cool uh, kid, you know, or I don't know, kid, he was probably like 30 or something. And (laughs) he, he, I think his name was Justin. And um, so, of course, obviously, we had opportunities to talk and get to know each other a little bit. And he said that he was from Madrid. That's where he was actually, you know, from and his family. He has some family there. He has a brother there and some other stuff. And even it was something very, very small. But I realized he was the first person that I had ever met who was directly from Spain. You mm-hmm. know, I was living in New York City and I've been in New York City for so much of my life. Obviously, I've known a lot of Hispanic people, a lot of Latinos yeah. or, you know, the people in the Latinx community. Obviously, I've known tons, but someone who's actually from Spain, who is not a tourist. And I was kind of, and it, again, the littlest thing, but that just made me go, hmm, I mm. wonder what it's like over there. <laughs> I wonder what people are like over there. What is life like over there? Oh, you know, 
I studied Spanish in high school. I actually, I was pretty proficient. I had, you know, I studied Spanish for, you know, a couple of years and I did pretty well. How cool would it be if I went to go visit Spain, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what? Nah, I don't even want to go visit there. I think it would be so cool if I actually went to go live there. So I'm 19, I'm in the middle of college, and I'm not going to be done for a couple of years. But that seed was planted, and I, it just stuck around. And two years later, when I graduated, um, that's another thing, too. I was able to complete my studies in three years instead of four. Oh, wow. So I was like, I was like, look, y'all can't tell me nothing. because, you know, I earned this. I I get to treat myself for a year. So I looked at it very much like that. Right. Um, And I did that by um, studying every summer. I would take, you know, a few classes over the summer to get myself ahead of the pace. And I also had a few uh, course credits uh, because of AP classes in high school. So thank you, high school teachers. Hmm. So I was able to finish my undergrad when I was 21 instead of 22. And then I was like, you know what? I still want to do that thing. And my family looked at me like I was crazy (laughs) um, because, you know, you've just finished your degree. You have a degree in your in your field. This is the part where you go find a job. Go find a job. What are you doing? Hmm. Um, And in fact, I had I'd actually already found a job. Um, So one of the friends that I met in college, you know, anyone listen to this, if you're a teenager, listen, college is about courses, but it's also you meet people who can connect you to things. You never know. Yeah. I had a friend who called me and was like, look, there's a job fair going on. I'm like, I didn't even have any resumes, but I went there. I met a principal. He offered me a job. So I had a job in the Department of Education already. Hmm. And I taught in summer school. But I told him, look, I'm doing this crazy thing. Look, man, you know, I don't know if you can hold a place for me, but I give you my word that I'll be back. And this principal did, you know, this act, this was um, George Leonard, the founding principal of Bedford Academy High School mm. in uh, Bedstock. And I went to I went to Spain and I had my uh, year there. And I think I'm being quite long winded, but I'll stop there. That's oh, what inspired no. it. You're good. I was just listening to you tell the story. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting how that all came about. Um, and what you said about how when you get an idea and it, it, it appeals to you enough and in your case, it sticks with you long enough because you had it for like a couple of years, um, right. and you just you just went with it, went full force into uh, going to Spain. So, did you just go, or were there some sort of arrangements you made, or any sort of like program you signed up for to yeah, so figure that, out what right, you were going to so, do? Yeah. So the other crazy part was that I didn't even use a program or anything. I actually literally just went. Oh wow! Um, okay. So I found out. A little bit off of campus to the side of the NYU campus, there was this uh, travel agency. I just went there and just found out, you know, how do you buy a ticket? And you, they won't they won't sell you a one-way ticket. Hmm. You have to buy a round trip. But the, you know, the person was like, oh, but you can change the date or whatever. So I just, I just bought a round trip ticket knowing that I actually intended to just go ahead and stay. Mm-hmm. And then it was, you know, the next part, of course, was... Um, finding a job and finding a place to live and this and that. So I, I pretty much my goal and my mission and what I was able to do successfully was to start my life all over again hmm. um, in another country and find all the things that I would need um, in order to make it. And so actually there, there was no um, program. I just knew um, I am what a lot of people are looking for. So, you know, the fact that I'm an English teacher already by trade, of course, was something that was very beneficial to me. It was a very helpful, uh, it was very helpful to actually have a degree mm-hmm. in that. So I, I got over there and I had to learn to write a resume or as they call it over there, a CV, you know, a curriculum vitae. I had to learn how to 
translate that into Spanish, not just Spanish, but Castilian Spanish. And then mm. I just had to pound the pavement. I, um, I stayed in the hostel for a few weeks and I would grab uh, little maps and I would just, I would look up all the different schools that I could find. And I would just, I just, I remember putting, I don't know, it might've been 30 or 40 circles on this map. I found all the addresses as well as I could. And, you know, this is 2003, so it's like MapQuest or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I just circled every school, and I would try to draw a line to see what's the best route for me to take. And I just walked from school to school to school until I was able to find one. Um, and I, and I, I found a place, and I interviewed with this person. And at first it was a no, but then they were something about me, and they were like, you know what, let's give you this opportunity. But the thing about it, too, is like – and I've, I've listened to some of your episodes. You had somebody who spoke about this very recently. Hmm. I think it was episode 80. Uh, Netherlands. And oh, about, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And about um, having teachers that uh, are teaching English, but English is not their first language. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty much like a golden goose. You know, here <laughs> I was someone who I had a degree in English education. I'm also a native speaker of English and I'm bilingual between English and Spanish. So, you know, despite the fact that I didn't have anything like a program or a sponsor or anything like that, I was able to um, find work. And I did that in Madrid, stayed yeah. in Madrid for three and a half months. Um, the people that I met there are the reason that I ended up deciding, let me try Barcelona, too. I'm here. And I ended up living in Barcelona for about six and a half months. And the same thing over there. I had to, you know, pound the pavement and find somebody who would employ me. And I did. And. I made a life in both places, and uh, you know my official vote. I'm not trying to offend anyone, but Barcelona over Madrid. End of discussion. <laughs> end of discussion. Okay. Yeah. What about <laughs> why do you why do you place Barcelona over Madrid? I mean, obviously you spent more time there, um, but you know what about it makes it uh, a cut above the rest. Yeah, I, for me, just the culture, the flavor, the vibe. Barcelona fit me better in those ways. Mm -hmm. And to top it, to top it off, there's also the fact that it's it's coastal. So you know, there's that too. Ah, uh, right, right, okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so that's amazing how that all came together. This is just a question I had as I was listening to you because um, you mentioned you know you went to a job fair and you didn't even have a resume, but you spoke to mm -hmm. the person who would become your employer and they decided to offer you a job. And then yeah. when you went to Madrid, you know, they initially <clears throat> rejected you, but then said something about you, made them reconsider. So I'm wondering if you know what it is about. I mean, obviously, you had so much going for you in terms of your your back, your education and being a native speaker. But do you know what it is about you personally, you think, that makes people think, oh, there's something about him. I want him involved in this thing or I want to give him a shot. Do you know what that is? Usually people tell me it's my passion. Okay. That's usually what I hear. And okay, cool. <laughs> and then you just roll with it. And I roll with it, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, you started out in Madrid, and then this isn't your first time teaching. Uh, as you said, you were working as a tutor back in New York. Uh, mm -hmm. But I'm wondering if teaching in Spain had any impact on how you viewed teaching or mm. your expectations of your career going forward, that experience teaching in Spain, was that like revelatory in any way? Yeah. Um, I'm writing something down because I don't want to forget. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, 
So, yeah, pluses and minuses. Um, the first thing that came to my mind when you asked that about how teaching English in Spain um, affected my view of, of my future career. The thing I was about to say before the thing I was about to say, um, <laughs> the the fact that I was teaching English as a second language, that, of course, was, was or is, right, a very different experience from the experience of teaching, you know, English literature, which is more properly what I was trained for. However, that I that did have so much experience as a tutor by that point. Mm-hmm. Um, that dovetailed with it quite well because I was usually working either individually or with groups of it was anywhere from one student to maybe ten, mm. you know, that I would be working with at a time. Um, but the big thing, and I know a lot of people who have taught English abroad can relate, it was actually it actually teaching English as a second language in a particular situation that I was in, it was kind of a turnoff. Mm. And the reason for that for me was that I became kind of a traveling salesman. It felt like that in a way, mm. um, because uh, the particular way that I, that the schools that I was working in used me. I, can't, I I don't I don't know. Maybe this is kind of like it's almost like entry level, and then you work your way up. I don't know, but mm. I was not employed in the buildings, the, the facilities themselves, and the actual schools. They would have me travel and work with people who you know were having. You know, classes particulares who are having like their own independent, um, you know, very much like tutoring. So mm. if I'm working a uh, an eight hour day, then four hours out of that eight hours, I'm on buses and trains. Wow. And then I'll sit down with somebody for it'll be a 30 minute lesson or a 60 minute lesson. I don't remember the details of the, the schedule exactly, but and then it's off to the next place and it's OK. See you on Thursday. OK, see you next week. Um and it, it had a little bit of a different feel. Like I said, honestly, it just kind of turned me off a little bit. It kind of um, that's that's not the kind of teaching that I really enjoy the most. Mm-hmm. But of course, I was really you know I was geeked on the fact that here I was you know living out my temporary dream. This is temporarily the thing that I thought would be so cool to do, and I made it happen. And here I am. Yeah. Um. So that was great, and the pay was pretty good. Pay you know the pay was all right. Before long, I was able to save up a fair amount of money. And there was absolutely a period of time towards the end of my trip where I was like, I don't, man, I know I gave my word to coming back to the States. <laughs> you don't want to go. But, <laughs> oh, man, I was like, and, and especially, you know, the more time you have, the more you settle in and the more you get acclimated to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have an apartment with friends and you have routines and there's the, the favorite place you hang out on this day and that day and all, you know. But I had given my word to come back and I came back and I started, you know, started my career, this part of my career, right? This phase. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was a little bit of the negatives. But another thing I will say about teaching English as a foreign language, um, I think that it added a lot of uh, unique knowledge and perspectives on English as a language itself, something that I do tap into quite frequently now in my profession that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise, just Mm -hmm. kind of knowing the ins and outs of the language. And see, so the thing, of course, like when you're a native speaker of a language, you you don't have a, a knowledge or an appreciation of like certain stuff that's just impossible for other people to learn certain or not impossible right but certain concepts yeah uh, what is hard about teaching English or excuse me learning English so there's the pronunciation thing of course because English pronunciation is all over the damn place right mm-hmm. it's not a it's it's a non non phonetic language so you literally have to learn every pronunciation of every word but there's other stuff too like phrasal verbs right so like we have phrasal verbs in english you know um if you're talking about a plane taking off that's you know a verb that has two words in it instead of one like if in the in spanish you don't you never have that there's no such thing as a phrasal verb oh, so okay. 
Yeah, so they don't have that. And in Spanish, any verb is going to be one word. And sometimes it has little pieces that you can add on to it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. um, it's just little kind of the particulars and the particles of our language that we take for granted because we already know these things because it's our native language, because right. we learned it through this organic process when we were three or four or five, or even something like irregular past tenses, mm-hmm. right? So you already know that the past tense of buy is bought. And mm-hmm. you don't struggle with that because English is your first language. Right. But for someone who it's not their first, and they're looking at you like, I can't just, why? Why is your language? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> but now, you know, when I'm working with, it just, it gives me that extra little edge in terms of understanding sometimes why certain things are challenging or in terms of having tools to be able to address a gap in student learning. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what you said about uh, English being so, like, the rules of English kind of seeming just so random and, and nonsensical, I totally get that. It's, as someone who's, you know, learned other languages, in that process of learning those other languages, it causes me to reflect on English and be like, oh, yeah, I guess I guess it would be really hard to figure out if, if you weren't, you know, born and raised in it and don't automatically just know what the rules are or remember what the rules are without contemplating yeah. them. Or not even rules, because it's like, because every rule that we have has all these different exceptions. Right, yes. You know? <laughs> even even I before E, except after C. Except when, you know, rhymes, words that rhyme with A as in neighbor and way, and then another and another. There's mm-hmm. so many, like, exceptions to everything, and there are many, many cases where there's literally thousands of different variations of something that mm-hmm. I just, if I were trying to remember that, I just would punch somebody. I don't, yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. frustrating for sure. Yeah. That's something that I got a little bit more insight into, but in a positive way, like it's, it helps me to do my job a little, a little bit better. Mm. I, yeah, I can definitely see that. You mentioned how your, your supervisor when you were uh, tutoring in New York was from um, Madrid and that inspired you to go to Spain. So, I mean, did you get any tips or even seek out any guidance from him when it came to, you know, when you were preparing to, to go to Spain? Uh, yeah, I asked him a few questions. I wanted, I wondered where I should start. Did I want to try to start with city life? Did I want to try to start with kind of rural life, something mm-hmm. in between? If I was going to do a city, which I decided, yeah, okay, city, say, okay, which one, right? Where should I start in this and that? Um, and Madrid made the most sense. I mean, you know, even for like um, small logistical things, like he actually, he connected me with his brother and I touched oh, nice. base with his brother who was there and we... And it ended up just kind of being a nice little thing. Like um, it wasn't necessarily that useful, but to at least have someone uh, like a contact person that I could go and and meet there and not feel uh, even to be able to go to a country and say, well, you know what? There's one person I do know. I have this contact, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, as opposed to there's literally no one here that I know. So there was something of a difference from that. And then, of course, as soon as I dealt with all of my fear, because, of course, there was plenty. Mm -hmm. Um, as long as I moved that aside and just did the work and, and started to find a way to settle in, then, of course, I, I made many, many connections and many relationships that I still have today. Oh, wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. And you mentioned how your family thought you were, I forgot what you said, you lost your mind or something. <laughs> planning mm-hmm, pretty to do, much. Doing a gap year instead of uh, starting your your career, your new job right away. So, I mean, did they change their tune after they saw, you know, how you were doing in Spain or 
did they, I don't know if they ever came around on that and understood more of what you were trying to do by doing a gap year. I see, yeah, I think they came around a little bit. Um, and I don't, yeah, I don't blame them at all. It's, you know, they, they were saying what was the most commonsensical mm-hmm. decision to make, you know, or, or a thought process. And they had valid points like, well, look, I mean, you're, dude, you're going to be a teacher. You're going to have summers off. Why don't you just, you know, you mm. can spend a month here or a month there or something. And it's, and I just needed them to understand that that's not what it was. <laughs> that's not what the plan was. Mm-hmm. That's not what I was trying to do. And, um, you know, what I really wanted was that immersive experience of really fully getting to know another place in this world. Yeah. You know, and that's what I was able to achieve. So the fact that I was able to do it successfully and on my own using the resources that I already had. I mean, I had a little bit of money saved up that I was able to buy my own plane ticket and get over there. And, um, you know, I'd already been working um, plenty. The first job I had, I was 13 and I'd never stopped working since then. So, Mm. I mean, I was able to get over there on my own means. So they just had to kind of accept that. And it served as a motivator for me, of course, because half of my fear was something happening and I'm in a place where I don't technically belong. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, a, I'm a tourist here. But the other half of my motivation was I, my, I would have, it would take everything in my power to swallow my pride and pick up the phone and tell, you know, my aunt who was like, what are you doing? <laughs> to tell her, sorry, I ran out of money. I need y'all to bail me out. I need you to buy me a plane ticket or, or I need you to pay the fee to change my plane ticket home or da da da. That would have, oh my, oof. I would have jumped off a cliff before I, I let myself do that. Oh man. So that served, of course, as a, there was something really powerfully at stake there. Like, nah, I got to make this work because mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, talking my tail and, you know, going back home. Yeah. Yeah. And you didn't make it work. And not only that, I, I remember you said something about how doing your gap year in Spain later inspired you to start um, Brownsville Abroad, or what's now known yeah. as Brownsville Abroad. Um, yeah. I'm assuming that because you had previously had time in Spain, that that's why you chose Spain as the first trip. Um, right. But can you talk about that process of why and when you decided to start taking your students abroad? Sure. No problem. So, right. So 2004, my sort of normal, typical, you know, regular career begins. And I'm a full-time English teacher, you know, known known as Mr. Jordan, right? Mm-hmm. And I go visit Spain from time to time, maybe like once a year. Mm-hmm. Then that becomes maybe once every two years. Then I, you know, fast, of course, then at some point I stopped visiting altogether. I started, I, I met the woman that became my wife in 2006, and we started our life together, and before mm-hmm. long, it was pretty serious. And then come, what do they say? Then come, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes a baby and a baby carriage. Baby carriage, right? yeah. <laughs> so all those things started happening, and it just there, it just took Spain um, off of my radar, and we just had entirely different plans then. Mm-hmm. And um, then came a day, and as far as I remember it, it was October 2016, and. I was doing some random, I don't know, I was folding laundry or putting laundry away or something like that. And Mm. the thought popped into my head, man, you know what? Next year is going to make 10 years since the last time I stepped foot in Spain. Man, I really, I miss that place. You know, I miss it so much. Mm. Mm. I got to get back there. Like, wow, let me go talk to my wife. Let me go, let's go put this together. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But then the next thought I have after that, I was like, wait a minute. How cool would it be if, I mean, because first of all, 
Spain matters to me. My family don't care nothing about Spain. Mm-hmm. Like, hmm, what if instead of me going to Spain, what if I actually was able to make a trip for students mm-hmm. where students could get a chance to go and, you know, experience this and da-da-da. I was like, oh, man, that would be, man, that would be so much more meaningful. Um, if I get to go, then I get to have a little taste of Spain again. I mean, it's, you know, you can't go back to the past. It won't be the same or whatever. Right. But I love this country and I would get to spend some time there. But more importantly, like I would actually get to directly introduce students to another part of the world um, that they would probably never see otherwise. You know, whoever wants in, right? People who are not interested, you don't have to. But if you want to go, let's go, right? Yeah. So there was the same kind of thing, like, you know, ping. Yeah, I got to do this. <laughs> And then the next thought, of course, is where am I? Where's the money going to come from? Right. Because who can actually afford this? Right. What high school student in Brooklyn who's not like some super privileged, you know, nothing wrong with that. Right. But who's not some super privileged prep kid or something like that? Who Mm -hmm. who could actually afford that experience? So um, I had a little bit of uh, previous experience with fundraising, with with crowdfunding. I did a project in 2013, very short and brief and simple. Um, it was another one of those ping, you know, I was <laughs> new interpretation of the play Macbeth where it was actually more like a one man show. And they used they used uh, dissociative identity disorder, what people used to call multiple personality disorder through Alan Cummings character as a as a way that was the way that they brought that they represented the madness hmm. that this character descends into and whatever. And it was a cool commercial. Yeah. Right. And I was like, oh, my God, I got to bring my students to that play. So I ended up, this in crowdfunding was kind of new back then. This is 2013 or whatever. So I, I ended up having my first crowdfund campaign, um, and I called it Brownsville to Broadway. And, you know, obviously I talked it over with a lot of people to make sure it was a good idea and to make sure that we would be able to find support and all that. And we set it up, and we raised um, $4,700 in 17 days. Wow. And I was able to take a group of 40 students and chaperones to, you know, a free Broadway ex- you know, experience. And I know there's programs now to do those kinds of things, but it had to be this play because the other thing too was like, um, this was directly part of my curriculum. So I timed my teaching of Macbeth before the play. And then there was all kinds of other cool stuff to happen. We actually, the company found out about us and we started to talk. I started to talk to one of the producers of the show mm. who even ended up um, donating to our campaign. And the students were able to, they, they arranged a talk back for us where after the play, the directors, there were two co-directors and they met with the students. It's amazing. It's something they would never have, you know, this, most of our students would never end up in Broadway and during their high school age. Hmm. And then now the, the theater's emptied out now. They've had this amazing show, the likes of which they've never seen before. Now it's quiet. Theater's empty. You're in the front row now because everybody's gone. Mm-hmm. The directors come out and it's an open, it's a Q&A. They're talking directly to you. You can ask any question at all about the show. Yeah. And then uh, we hung out a little bit afterward. Alan Cumming himself actually came over and kind of chilled with the kids for half a minute and allowed them to take some pictures and stuff. But the main point of it, of course, was that I, I saw that there was this potential that people really responded to something, especially when it's something that benefits kids, you know, and they get to have an experience that they wouldn't have otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, there's people out there, are people out there who are ready to step up and support that. I saw so much excitement about it. People were more excited about it than I was. I was like, wow, okay. So um, when it, you know, fast forward three or four years down the line, it gave me the confidence to believe that this was something else that could work, yeah. um, that I could that I could have a crowdfunded 
school supervised, you know, field trip using a platform like GoFundMe. You know, that's the one that we used. Mm -hmm. Um, And that uh, I believed that there would be sufficient support around. I mean, I knew what I was doing was the goal was 10 times. uh, Yeah, just about 10 times larger than the initial, the previous experience. And um, we jumped and went for it and it worked. And we were able to do the Spain trip. And then after the Spain trip, which could have very possibly been a one-off, but after that trip took place, I was like, nah, this, you know, (laughs) this is, this certainly needs to continue. It just, there was so, it was, there were flaws to it, of course, but there was a lot of it that was just so rich, Mm -hmm. um, what that was like for the students and what, what they were able to see and do. And so it was very much, the whole vibe was, you know, where to next. And so you go back to the drawing board and we do another and another. And at one point, um, you know, initially the vision was uh, six continents in six years. We started with Spain, so that takes care of Europe. So let's look at other places in the world now. And then, you know, when I, when school resumed in the fall, I put it up for a vote. Students said, let's go to Japan. I said, okay, mm-hmm. cool, let's go to Japan. And we started another campaign. You know, we did the whole pr- proposal and everything, and let's sit down with my principal and talk about it and what are the how do we want to put this together and this and that. And, you know, we made that happen. We had another campaign where, fortunately, it was successful and students were able to Traveled to Japan briefly uh, the following summer. Um, this is 2018 now. Mm-hmm. Um, Spain was 2017. And then we had a third campaign and a successful campaign to visit South Africa. Oh, wow. And we did that. Yeah. And uh, we did that in uh, the following year, of course, in 2019. Mm. Needless to say, uh, COVID mm. put the kibosh. Yeah. You know, COVID put the kibosh on our travel plans uh, temporarily, mm-hmm. although I am happy to report uh, that we are now planning to come roaring back in 2022, and we actually are looking to do two trips this time for oh, the wow. first time. Okay. Yeah, so, Do you know where you're going um, next year? Well, well, um, I'm like, oh, should I say it? Should I not? Um, so, <laughs> okay, I can, I can say it because I really like mystery, as you can tell, right? So mm-hmm. um, one of the... Uh, what, what we were planning on for 2020, and you know, if you're a member for 2019, I'm sure you're, I, I'm sure that you're aware of this. You know, that was the year of return, mm-hmm. right? That was yes. that 400 year anniversary, right? So yeah. everybody was talking about visiting Ghana, and it just, it just made sense, you know, mm-hmm. it just made perfect sense. And so we put that on deck for 2020, and that had to be delayed, of course. But now that's our plan for 2022: is to bring mm-hmm. students to Ghana. Um, the other destination is one that students will select, and I started the process in June, and I'm liking, it's interesting, kids are, yeah, they're picking really interesting countries all over the world, and it's pretty much, um, you know, we have, um, so, so, okay, so we have an international club in my school, mm-hmm. and technically we did have, uh, we did have a couple international trips uh, before, or at least there was one. I think there was one international trip some years before, right? Yeah. But this is the first time we've had like something really, you know, consistent and lasting in the school, uh, whereas many, many students now are having this opportunity. And it's also something that, so I want to build the, um, the kind of the program part. I want to turn it from a project to a program. And what I mean by that is that um, with our first trip, it really was about the international component. Mm-hmm. And there was not that much. There was a little bit, two or three or four activities that students did 
before the international component of the trip. And then with Japan, that got stepped up in a big way, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that happened, just one example um, for our Japan trip, uh, we were able to get some news coverage. We were on the local news, and a librarian in the area, a guy who teaches a Japanese class at, the, at uh, one of the local branches of the library near us, he saw that, he reached out to me, he said, hey, man, why don't I, I'll create a special section of my class that'll be just for your students. They can learn some Japanese before they go. What oh, do you say? Wow. I said, hell, you know, hell yeah, That's go ahead, amazing. let's do it. Yeah, right? And it was a short walk from the school. You know, he came over to the school and visited, got to know us and all that. And, and uh, he did that. He did that for a matter of, you know, for a number of months. Uh, before the actual departure. So, you know, that's just one example. Mm -hmm. And then um, similarly with the South Africa trip, uh, we looked at building that out further, right? So that there's more of a, there's, there's a a more of a longstanding educational component that takes place. And also uh, the international club is the structure and the vehicle that I use for our fundraising itself. Uh, We always require that students take a hand in the fundraising itself. They need to be mm. a part of that process. Yeah. And it helps to build the value that the, the entire journey and the whole process, the value that it has to them and the meaning that it has to them. But also it's it's teaching certain kinds of skills and it's doing a little bit of character building as well. I had, mm. um, there's one student I'm thinking about right now, I was just doing some, um, this particular student shared about how meaningful it was for him to learn how to approach people and share about what it is that we were doing and also let them know that we were looking for support and this is how they could support and, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, who knows, you know, that's the kind of skill that, um, and even just breaking down comfort zones and breaking down barriers, you know, there are many, many ways that we um, can achieve that. So, and just one other thing that I want to put in um, Mm -hmm. as far as what Brownsville Abroad has always been like and what it looks like currently is that we do require our students to pay a very small portion of the actual travel cost. Now, when I, you know, not our students, it, you know, it's usually the student's family will pay, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they'll have uncles and aunts who will chip in, mom and dad will chip in as much as they can, or whoever, whoever their parent or their guardian happens to be. You know, they'll gather their resources and make it happen, and that's another part of what can be very transformative about our trips. But uh, they usually, it's usually maybe like 15%. Um, so our trips are not free. We actually where we do not offer them for free currently. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for that, again, it kind of it goes back to value and investment. And we find that our students, they're more invested and committed in what and everything that we're doing if they do have to, you know, put together a small amount of uh, the finances themselves. So, yeah, so that's another part of how it's been built and designed. But, of course, the vast majority of it, we put together through crowdfunding, well, you know, through fundraising, which crowdfunding is a big, big part of our fundraising, but we also do uh, what I like to refer to as community fundraisers. So that could yeah. look like some of our, some of our favorite fund or my, <laughs> my favorites. I love them. Um, <laughs> some of my favorite community fundraisers that we've have become staples for us. We do uh, what I call the run so they can fly 5k. Mm. And we did one of those in June, and it was really cool. And essentially how that works is that uh, the students run a 5K race. Uh, However, before the 5K race, they go out in their community and in their family, and they find sponsors to sponsor their run. Um, There's an organization called Prospect Park Track Club that does uh, many, many, many events in Prospect Park. 
Uh, we hold that once a year. The students get to come out and do a lap around the park three miles. That's a whole other thing. That's like, <laughs> I know all my parents out there, they know to get a kid to walk and run for three miles. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so there's also kind of like what I said, too, like there's a lot of value in all, in all the different activities that we have for a lot of our students. It's actually they have like a sense of triumph at the end of it. You know, mm. it's actually really it's kind of it's kind of powerful. Yeah. And um, this year we raised I think it was about 16 or 1700 dollars um, mm. doing that with only about uh, I think we had like seven or eight participants or something. We were still able to raise oh, that wow. amount. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of ours. And we do art auctions. You know, I really love that one as well, where uh, it'll usually be present and former uh, scholars at my school. So I have to I'm, I know this is like super rambly here. I, good, I have to good. stop. I have to I have to stop myself and I have <laughs> to properly introduce. I cannot say another word without mentioning. So my school is Frederick Douglass Academy 7. And this is in the community of Brownsville, Brooklyn. Right. Mm-hmm. So we got to pause and address that real fast. Right. Because. Um, me calling it Brownsville Abroad, there's a whole context behind that, right? Yeah. So uh, the school that I currently teach at, um, actually, I've been at the school for a very long time. It's a great school. We fight. We, we definitely fight for mm-hmm. our kids. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. yeah, so I've been there since 2007. I've been a teacher since 2004. I've been at FDA 7 since 2007. And we are in Brownsville, Brooklyn. And um, so there's a whole just, I, you know, I know that there are many people from many places who will hear this uh, episode and Brownsville is economically speaking, it's the neighborhood that has the highest levels of poverty. Um, it has the lowest levels of employment. Um, it has the lowest levels of um, economic resources and opportunity in many cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it's it's just kind of the dis- the definition of a disadvantaged area. Mm-hmm. And also, um, violence is something that the neighborhood has a very has a very uh, bad reputation for violence. But you really have to – there's a lot of things that have to be said in addition to that because people like to address that, but they don't like to give the whole story. you know. Mm, yeah. So it depends on what you're looking at and how you're defining, uh, de- uh, defining crime, but also more importantly that. Like crime is way down. Crime is way down in, the, in Brownsville. Crime is way down in New York City. Mm. The city is changing. Brownsville is changing. People imagine almost like this wild, wild west type. It, it, it really is not like that. <laughs> if you go to Brownsville, at any that you know, you go to Brownsville, what you're going to see is people living their life. You're going to see, you know, regular people going about their their everyday life in their regular business. Right, of course. Um, you know, so you'll hear horror stories about things about the neighborhood, and some of it's true, some of it is true, but you know, it's not what people imagine. Like some place where you need to, where you you should fear to tread or something like that. It's nothing. It's just, it's just not like that. You know, out of, out of a hundred days that I have there, there'll be one or two days that, you know, I hear something that's cause for concern. It's really just people living their life. So, you know, but if we're going to offer opportunities like this for students where they get to have unique experiences, Mm -hmm. Brownsville is, is to me, that's the best place to do it. Let's do it where it's making a kind of difference that isn't going to get made otherwise or or that it, it it just means more it's just a bigger you know it's kind of like forget what you heard let's take you know some students and really take them all the way out of the normal kind of daily confines in which they live and let's let's show them places and people and experiences that they they can't imagine that they couldn't 
Um, and, you know, not because not for lack of imagination, but simply because it is such a contrast from day to day life. And that's true for a kid yeah. in Brownsville, Brooklyn. That's true for a kid in Tennessee. That's true for a kid in Gainesville, Florida, whatever. Right. Yeah. I'm just saying that to me, this is the community where I'm like, I think that they deserve they deserve these like the best. They deserve these mm-hmm. moments of the best, um, the kinds of things there's. So I'll, I'll um FDA, you know, for Frederick Douglass Academy, our school follows the model of the first Frederick Douglass Academy, which was founded in, I believe, 1991 hmm. in Harlem by Dr. Lorraine Monroe. Rest in peace to her. Hmm. And when I was changing schools and coming to FDA 7 and I saw they were there's like a 2020 news report about this school and how they just transformed this, like just started these new lives and these new possibilities for everybody who was involved. Really, really inspiring stuff. And one of the well, one of the things that Dr. Lorraine Monroe shared in that 2020 footage, she shared about um, giving our students the kind of education that rich people pay for. Mm. Yeah. And that's something that really struck a chord with me. Whatever neighborhood you're in, whatever background you have, something about let, putting pulling together resources, making a plan, doing outreach. To give students who, in many cases, have been gi- given the least, mm-hmm. to find ways to give them some of the most and to give them the best yeah. um, of what there is, you know, to have. Um, and so that's a very large part of why I want to do this work and why I want to do this work here and why we do it the way we do it. And that's just that's something that moves and inspires me about it. And mm. there's another part to that as well. So I now that we're at a place where. You know, international travel is a part of my school's culture now. Mm. And that's something that we're beginning to be known for. And I, I'm very much, I, I love that. I think that's great. I think people should know yeah. um, that Frederick Douglass Academy 7. I don't know about nobody else. I ain't talking about nobody else. Whatever other people do, <laughs> whatever they, that's their business. But, you know, you can catch some premium experiences up in here. And what I'm doing is just, it's it's more and more baked into the culture of my school, that that possibility exists. That if you want to see more of the world, yeah. not just know about it and learn about it, because we're definitely going to do that. And that's very necessary and very essential. I think you know each and every student really should have the chance to learn anything they want to learn about the world. But then there's this other part now where I really want to start to make it more common. Um, I, I want to make it almost unremarkable. Mm for uh, students to experience, you know, for New York City students to experience international travel itself before uh, they graduate. Yeah. You know, by the time they graduate, that's something that's very inspiring to me. So, you know, we're beginning to make that a reality at Frederick Douglass Academy 7. We've done that for dozens of students so far. And I want to make it to the point where, as I said, that it's kind of ordinary. And so, I don't know, maybe that looks like other schools uh, see what we're doing, and they find ways to implement that, you know, within their own context and within their own, within their own culture. I don't know. Maybe the city creates some new programs. Uh, before the panorama began, <laughs> I started. Um, I actually was I was starting to make those kind of moves and starting to make some of those connections. Yeah. To start some conversations about, you know, how can we? Um, and I'm not giving any details here because I hate speaking about. I'm very superstitious in that regard. I don't like. I feel like. The more I say, the less likely it is. But I, oh, I, I feel I, that's that's what's, you know, that's what's next for me, um, in terms of what my goals are. I really okay. want to see what the what the city can 
do for more kids in New York City. Like, let's make this common. Let's make this blow up. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Well, that's phenomenal that this idea that you had in 2016 while, you know, folding laundry has turned into what it's turned into. And mm-hmm. and then keeping in mind also what you want for the future in terms of continuing to build that at your own school, but also find a way to expand it or spread it so that more students can have these opportunities. And I like what you said about how, um, in terms of getting the students involved in fundraising, because like you said, it's like they have a vested interest and they're right. basically being shown that they, they're contributing to this thing being successful, you know, and they, right. they can take pride in that they themselves, but also working together and engaging with their community, were able to make this um, experience successful. So, um, yes. Yeah. I definitely see where you're coming from with that. So yes, as you said, it was Spain, 2017, Japan, 2018, and then South Africa, 2019. I heard the most about the Japan one. I think that's when I first heard about what you all were doing. Cause, um, I think mm-hmm. I might've mentioned when we were messaging how I was in a couple of black people in Japan groups and mm-hmm. everyone seemed to be talking about it. And then I know you talked to Mr. Baye McNeil with the Japan mm-hmm. Times. You had an article that was really mm-hmm. great that came out. So I'm wondering, like, I know for Japan, like y'all were able to specifically connect with black people who were living in the areas that you were visiting. Mm-hmm. I don't know if yes. that is a priority at all for, if that was a priority for Spain or South Africa, or if, if that's something that you keep in mind when you organize these trips is connecting with local black people in those destinations or, um, or is that, or is that just like a, a happy coincidence when it came to Japan in particular? Great question. Let's okay. Good. So I would love to talk about that. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's, I try to build that into each trip or each, you know, each, each, um, each campaign or each program and you know why, right? So why is of course cultural relevance. One of my, yeah. um, one of my goals is I want our students to understand and know that they belong everywhere, that mm-hmm. black people are everywhere. So, you know, I mentioned that, that my school is situated in Brownsville, Brooklyn. Yeah. And um, for many people that they already know that that means black, but you might not. Right. So the mm-hmm. demographics of my school, my school is um, approximately 90 percent black, a little over 9 percent Latino or Latinx, mm-hmm. and point something percent white. Okay. <laughs> so we, um, yeah, my school is almost entirely uh, black and brown. Mm-hmm. And so that's important culturally as well, right? So, you know, I want my students to know, people who look like you, we go everywhere, we do everything. Everywhere, yeah. So, you know what I mean? Like, you may not, you might think you don't belong, or you might think that this is this place is so different, like they manufacture a different kind of human over there. No, um, this is you and this is for you and you you are, you know, you are there and let's go find you over there. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so, OK, so Spain. So Melon and Madrid got to shout them out. One of the most important parts of, of the success of our program has been um, communities on social media, specifically Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have to quickly shout out Black Travel Movement which uh, Reggie Cummings is the person, you know, he's a founder and uh, the person in charge of black travel movement. Mm-hmm. They've been uh, monumentally helpful with us in terms of us uh, succeeding in our campaigns. 
And in terms of just putting those pieces in there where one thing led to the next and led to the next. So black travel movement, I always like to, I always shout them out because our first campaign might not have succeeded without them. Mm -hmm. And so in our second and third and now fourth campaigns, we are standing on the shoulders of our, of ourselves for our first campaign. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a quick shout out, but more specific to Spain itself. So we, uh, Melon in Madrid and Trinica Renee, uh, who runs that group. Uh, has been very, very helpful to us and very welcoming to us and just helping us to spread the word about our campaigns and all of that. And, mm -hmm. of course, when uh, the time came for us to travel to Spain, they made sure to make arrangements with us to actually get to touch base with the students. And um, I am glad. I'm thankful for the tour companies that we use. That's another piece of how um, our travels have worked is that the, we, you know, we do not create our own itineraries. Uh, we use travel companies. I don't know if I'm supposed to name them, whatever. But we use, okay. you know, like the official <laughs> travel companies. Yeah. Um, just so that that and that works for us, you know, because we these these trips have to get, be approved by the administration. You know, there's an administration above us. There's the Department of Education. So, mm -hmm. and I'm really glad we've been able for every trip we've we've been able to put in additional experiences, uh, activities, and excursions and. You know, even whole afternoons, sometimes we've been able to put into enrich uh, and supplement. And so that's been really cool. So we yeah. got a chance to chill with um, there's a particular Melanin Madrid member, uh, Majida Mundial, who she just did like a, I don't know what she would call it, but really just a chat and chew with uh, with uh, the, the group of kids. We all came and met with her and we spoke. She spoke to students about the experiences of travel, but also about traveling as a black person, you know. We had 10 students and we had uh, nine black students and one brown student. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, it was wonderful to get to spend that particular, that hands-on time, you know. Um, I have to shout out Nicole Pearson. She's another person who we contacted through Mellon in Madrid. Uh, she's working at, she uh, uh, was at uh, Tufts University at the time. I don't know if she's still there. I hope so, so she can host us again, right? But mm, yeah. <laughs> um, she actually created a, she created a whole workshop for the students. Um, she did so, she was one of the, uh, the people who visited our students in the school during one of her trips to the United States. Mm. So she said, hey, I'm in your neck of the woods. Can I come, you know, right? Uh, or I'm going to be in your neck of the woods, right? So she came and did a, a custom workshop, you know, free of charge and all that um, for the students specifically about uh, the uh, to prepare them as, you know, young black and brown people. What are you going to see? What are you going to experience? Right. Uh, but also just to drop some gems, you know, especially about uh, the blackness of Spain. There is a certain blackness of Spain if you look at it in a certain kind of way. You know, uh, mm -hmm. most obviously I'm talking about the Muslim conquest. You know, for yeah. seven centuries, right? And this indelible and widespread and deep and profound impact that that had on the culture there. And they can deny it if they want. But, you know, you have mm -hmm. black in your culture. Yes, you do. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so all kinds of stuff like that. Before the trip, when we were there on the trip, we always, yeah, we always make those those kinds of connections. Yeah. yeah. And um, with South Africa, not necessarily necessary, right? Right, right. You're going to have that, right? So, you know. Okay. Oh, wow. Um, you know, I was wondering as far as uh, your students go, wait, you mentioned with Spain, it was like 10 students. So is that about the same mm -hmm. amount that you take for, for each trip? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was 10, then 15 and then 10. Okay. So and total of 35, but unique students, I think it's 27 or 28. Um, we tend to, you know, for understandable reasons, we like to expose as many people as possible. So there's yeah. not that much, uh, not that much repeating. I see. Okay. Yeah. And then about how long are there, are there trips usually? 
seven days, seven, I think it was seven days, eight days, 11 days. That's including travel time, but yeah. Right. So seven, so like one to two weeks. Yeah, a weekish. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm wondering as far as, well, I don't know. Um, I, I was going to ask how you get students interested, but I don't, I'm assuming that there are some, once they hear about the idea, they're raring to go. But I'm wondering if, right. if there are instances where you have to try and entice students to to want to go. And if, if yeah. that is the case, then, you know, what is it that you try to say to students to get them interested? Actually, yeah. One of the, one of the most challenging parts of the process for me has been uh, the recruiting. Mm. And particularly for our first trip, uh, I started the recruiting process in December, and it wasn't until maybe about April that I had all the spots filled on the trip. Mm. And so what the recruiting process looked like in that particular case, so we started to make some, you know, I was in, I was allowed to uh, make a presentation at uh, meetings. Uh, we had, you know, some of the community meetings that we were having, like, um, well, I just, you know, there was a uh, uh, an event where there were pl- uh, parents and students and everything involved. Really cool uh, evening that we had that uh, December. It was around Christmas time, and I was allowed to present. And I thought, oh, I just knew, <laughs> oh, I'm gonna have this wrapped up in two weeks, and you know, um, I had a parent who was very, very touched by this opportunity, and came, you know, before I could even walk back to my seat, she came to meet me in the aisle. And tell me how wonderful of an opportunity this was and that she really wanted her daughter to be in it. And when Mm. can she make her deposit? And then, of course, at that point, I was like, yeah, oh, this is great. So people see the possibility of this. Mm -hmm. And then, no, I had to keep putting it in. I had to keep um, just, you know, generating it and bringing it to life, the possibility of it. I would go down to the cafeteria during lunch periods and I would speak to students and I made a list. You know, who wants me to, I would, of course, you know, tell them about the trip and then, you know, who wants me to follow up with your parent? Because that's one thing for sure, right? Yeah. We need parental permission, literally, to take you across the street, you know? Mm-hmm. So you damn sure ain't leaving the country if your parents <laughs> are not with it. Right. <laughs> you know, you damn sure, like, you know, that's not, that's, that's, that's dead. It doesn't matter how. And we've, and we've had students who were super adamant about going, but it didn't work out on the parent end. Mm. Um, and there was, you know, some kind of sad situations with that, but you know, we're not, I'm not kidnapping anyone and bringing them abroad. So it it just, it really did take a while. And for that first trip, I think it's very simply, well, for one thing, even though the prospect of visiting Spain was so interesting and intriguing to me, Mm -hmm. that's not necessarily, you know, Americans are, I don't know, we, we're not that interested in actually going to Spain. It's not a place that we really Mm -hmm. think of. It's like, you know, Oh, let me go there. So it really took like, um, you know, just painting the picture for folks yeah. um, that first time around. Now, what I really was encouraged to see was between the first trip and the second trip, um, that dramatic change and that dramatic difference. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Spain, Spain took, you know, several months to recruit and we found our students. We found out of the 10 who ended up going on the trip eventually, there was a good group of at least 15 who were like, oh, I want to do Oh, this is cool. I want to do this, you know. Mm. Um, and then for Japan, when that time came around, I think the, the location itself is Japan. Right. You know, <laughs> it's exciting. Were, it, it was, it was instant. <laughs> and, um, I've heard you, I've heard you mention this on previous episodes as well, like because of things like, you know, anime and things, you know, yeah. um, a lot of our students, I was actually, I was really shocked in a positive way. You know, kids will do that. They'll shock you sometimes with the things that they know. And we had um, quite a few students who already had a fair amount of knowledge of Japanese language and culture. Mm. 
And they gained it through, you know, things like anime. That was a big part of how, you know, they learned about and and the fact that even to the point of knowing uh, phrases and such and Mm -hmm. and being able to have half a conversation in Japanese, even though you've never been formally trained in any Japanese. I just thought that was really awesome. So, you know, um, so long story short. I don't know how to make a story short, but anyway. That's all right. So, uh, yeah. So um, long story short, Japan, when we opened up that trip, I think it was about, um, it might have been two weeks when I had um, maybe about 20 students who were solid, solidly oh, wow. interested. And I'm talking about like, you know, 20 applications in my hand is, is what I'm saying. So, yeah. um, and that, of course, was magnificent to see. And that was definitely because of the interest um, but I hope and believe, I would like to believe that part of that too was because students saw that it was real, mm-hmm. um, that what we had achieved the year before, that it could be done and that this time I wasn't. And you can even just, I don't even just your swagger about it changes, right? At first it's like, mm-hmm. well, what we're planning to do. And then it's like, no, so what we're doing is. Yeah, what we're going <laughs> you know? to do for sure. <laughs> right. You know, that whole process was really magical and the velocity of everything for Japan was, it was, it was, it was fun and mm-hmm. it was, it was unique, the whole thing. And yeah, the, the recruiting and the interest was, was very much there. And then for um, South Africa in the third year, well, by this point, of course, we have some students that are just, they're just in, Oh, we're going again. We're going to do another one. Boom. <laughs> um, and I think, I think I was allowed to reserve. I think it ended up being like three spots maybe of students who were repeat travelers, but we had to open most of it up, you know, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So then, you know, we started the recruiting process with that one as well. And it it was, uh, it was, it wasn't quite Japan levels, but you know, it was, it was there. Mm -hmm. And um, what I do rely on going forward is, you know, the fact that again, that we've done this and we've shown and proved and it has a reality to it and it has, you know, a tangibility to it now. So what do we say to students? Well, at this point, um, I'm usually teachers are very generous with me in terms of like allowing me to pop into their class and speak to their students for two minutes. Mm -hmm. And we'll do like we'll set up an interest meeting and those who are interested can come and attend. And at this point, it's like, well, this is what this one looked like. Look at this that we were able to do. And we did that. And we did this one and we did that one. And um, so I started uh, some of our I, I restarted our international club and uh, I believe it was late May. Mm-hmm. And I had one of the students from the South Africa trip, which at this point is now, you know, it's two years ago. But we still had uh, one student who was uh, who was with us in the building and he would come to the meetings and he would talk a little bit about his experience and where did he think we should go next and this and that. So that's what it looks like now, you know, mm-hmm. just painting the picture for them. You know, look at this. This is look at, you know. Put yourself in there and yeah. imagine some of the some of uh, what that could be like for you. And, of course, this time, um, the other part, too, is that I make I make sure students know how much involvement they have. And I think that's also important as far as recruiting goes. Mm. You know, yeah. Um, first of all, the disclaimer, right, that this is not a passive process. This is not a TV show and you're not going to come in here and simply watch something develop. Mm-hmm. You're going to be directly involved in very many. Of course, there's the, the grown up talk that has to happen beside behind closed doors. You know, there, of course, there are meetings that happen that students are not at, but they have their hand in quite a lot of uh, what takes place. And so that is, you know, a disclaimer, but that is also an incentive as well. And mm. also making sure that students know that they don't have to. Um, that was one thing I, I received some great. Uh, some great coaching on that from um, one of my assistant principals at the school. 
well, the assistant, you know, we have one assistant. So the coaching of just making sure, really getting that message across that this is for everyone, whether or not you end up going on the eventual, the eventual international trip, come and be a part of this and, you mm. know, come and get a chance to learn and contribute and experience. Right. And, um, you know, get, you get the value out of between now and next year. Like this trip is next year. Mm-hmm. There's so much time to really suss out who's actually going to be there. And it's not, it's never exactly who is in at the beginning it never is Mm. but in the meanwhile you know there's no reason for you to you don't have to you know you're not excluded you're included you know come check it out come see what we're doing i see okay so i'm glad that it has become a lot easier and um like you said you know the first time was difficult but then once you had that proof and had set that precedent then it was much easier to to draw students in I know you said, you know, you, you had your own various, or you have your own various hopes for what students get out of it in terms of like being able to see that black people are everywhere and do everything and also just immersing them in, in different environments and, and getting a chance to see the world in ways that they might not be able to at, at their age. I'm wondering though, if, um, like what kind of feedback you tend to get from students after they have like coming away from the trips, if there's any that sticks in your mind in terms of what students feel about what they gained from from their experience? Mm-hmm. Sure. So one of the pieces that I put in, I usually, I like to do exit interviews on the trips mm. um, on the way home. And I do a few things. Like one of the things that I'll do is I'll, of course, I'll ask students about the high points and low points of the trip for them, of course, you know. Um, and things that they didn't expect and things like that. And I'll ask them to, if you could choose just one word to sum up what this whole experience has been for you, what would that word be? Mm. You know, so that's some of the kind of the soft feedback that I get. And I was able to get that in Spain and I was able to get that in Japan. And actually I was not able to, and this is, you know, a little drama, but I was actually not able to go or, or not drama is not the word I meant to use. I meant to use the word tragedy. Mm. Um, I actually was unable to go on the South Africa trip. Oh, wow. Uh, so I had to, yeah, I had to miss out on that opportunity, but it was actually, but it was for a very good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so our son was one at the time. It was just, I just, you know, I just needed to be a dad and just mm-hmm. stay home and, you know, help take care of the kids that summer. So I didn't get to interview the students directly, but I did hear back. One of the things that I heard from, uh, from that trip, there's a particular student who shared about, um, he just, just when he thought South Africa, he thought, mm, we're going to fly in. It's going to be, you know, I forget the exact words that he used, but, you know, he expected rural, you know, mm. he expected people would be living in perhaps huts and shacks and, you know, but when he got there, he was like, oh, so it's okay. Cities and there's, there's, yeah. and <laughs> there's highways and and everybody here is driving a car and there's, you know, and there's the, and there's a rich part of town mm. uh, and there's all these other things. So um, I think that's been a large part of what students have gotten um, out of our trips is really challenging uh, their own expectations. And that's been especially important for our trip to South Africa and the trip that we'll be taking uh, to Ghana as well. Mm, yeah. Um, for Japan, I would, they already had, I think enough familiarity that they weren't, that surprised what they got out of that trip was they said different kinds of things in that case but um, but to have students share like oh wow the world is not what i expect and Mm -hmm. also i think there's also a piece of uh, there's pride that comes along with that as well 
Um, I have not had students express that in that word, um, but just to whatever extent they view themselves as African, right? We're African, you know, we, we, that's where we descend from. One piece of feedback that I got from multiple students uh, was about that, that when we, when um, not we, but uh, when they landed in South Africa and actually began to see uh, what it was like there, that it def- definitely did update. You know, they had to update their files on uh, what they imagined. Uh, right. So, and another thing, too, was um, appreciating the little things. One of the parts of the itinerary was visiting uh, a place called Shangan Village. I'm not sure if I'm saying it correctly, but there was a village that the students were able to visit and interact with the, com- the local community there. Mm. And, uh, you know, really get that person-to-person interaction, which that's something... It's, it's, it's travel as education, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's distinct from travel as vacation. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's a lane for that. And, you know, but when we hear about Aruba, Jamaica, you know, ooh, I want to take you, you know, we don't think about <laughs> it's, it's, that's what I want is for students to really get chances to connect with um, people around the world and especially young people, right? That's always like in Japan, out of all the stuff they did. Favorite activity, hands down, was uh, when we had the chance to visit a school. Um, this was outside the city, you know, maybe half hour or so outside the city, and we got a chance to visit school, and the kids got to uh, sit and do activities uh, with the students there. They were playing games. They were learning how to paint uh, different Japanese characters, some calligraphy, Japanese calligraphy, um, card games. There was a video game station because there's some you can do some serious bonding over video games, over some Smash Brothers, right? Yeah. Oh, and, and by the way, that, of course, in Japan, that's uh, despite the language barrier, right? Despite the fact that they were not really able to communicate with each other very well. Like, they found a way uh, to communicate and connect. And it was, it was, a, it was a, a hit. It was an absolute hit. <laughs> um, the best part of that experience. So South Africa, you know, visiting Shangan Village and getting a chance to interact with the villagers there. Um, and a particular student shared with me how you know, this is not the city now, and this is, you know, this is, uh, you know, literally a village. He saw how little many of the children had, how little they possessed. And, you know, in many cases didn't even have shoes, and, and you know, they, they didn't have paved floors. Um, you know, they had floors that were, uh, I believe the way he described it, it was like it was, you know, it was, it was basically, you know, packed um, dirt that they had to walk on on their floor. That's what they had. And the fact that they were totally fine with it. And the fact that they were, the more that he thought about it, the more he reflected on it, he saw so much happiness um, in those children. Um, and he saw how here in the United States, even, and this particular student, you know, I don't want to put all of his business out there, but this, I'm just checking what details I've revealed about him, but I, I haven't shared the student's name. Um, this student actually uh, was homeless at one point in time. Oh. Um, so even for that student, right? For him to be in South Africa and to see these children who, despite their own poverty, and we know what poverty looks like outside the United States is very different from what it looks like inside the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you can be poor inside the United States, but you still have certain kind of institutions and facilities, et cetera, that are still available to you. So he saw that, and it just really affected him. He's like, you know, here we're thinking about, what's the next iPhone and am I going to be able to get the newest and latest this or that or whatever these material possessions and feeling like that's what where our happiness is derived from. And here are these people who have almost nothing, but they're better off than us. They, they're good. 
And um, that really made him reflect and, and see um, that we, we don't appreciate the little things. And I know that a lot of that sounds cliche, but the thing about this is, you know, part of what draws me to it, you know, I'm a teacher. I've been doing that. I've had plenty of you know times that, I, that students have heard or done something in, in my classroom and were wowed by it. But I want them to have those wow moments out in the world. Yeah. I want them to have so there's you know so it's like that difference between conceptual understanding and um, experiential learning. So that's something that's really big for me in uh, in what we do, and I really have a lot of faith in that because I think I think what drives me to do this is inherently the same thing that made me choose to be a teacher. And I know we spoke about that at the beginning of the interview. And that actually, that's something I always knew I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. The way I remember it, I was watching an episode of Saved by the Bell, the college oh. years. <laughs> and they had a teacher who was like, he was like the cool teacher. And I remember that he had long hair and he had jeans. And I'm, I'm bald, you know, I don't have the long hair, but I can put jeans on on Fridays, whatever. But I just like, I saw him and I was like, and he, the connection that he had with the students, he was like the cool teacher or whatever. I, I was probably like 12, but I don't know. I just, I saw something in that for myself, um, being able to connect with young people. Um, and especially when, like, come on, like I get, I get paid money to show people that learning stuff is fun. Yeah. And if I do it really well, then, you know, if you, teaching of course is, is like crazy hard, but if you learn how to really connect and I'm still working on that 17 years in, but there's so, it's so rewarding. And I think that's really the heart of what makes me do this to, uh, to do this, meaning uh, to do our international travel program. It's still the same thing, but it's like so much bigger because the student is like, I'm learning these things, you know, halfway across the world. Yeah. You know, they wouldn't use this this word, but that moment in their life is an inflection point. It's mm-hmm. going to be. And so I, I, and I see this very frequently that it's like before we went and after we went, it's kind of like how it is. Mm-hmm. And after they've, they've gone and done that, it's it's like they come back and they get to open up a new chapter and they, they have this um, these new uh, understandings of themselves and also the world that they get to take with them. Mm. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so, I mean, obviously this is very rewarding to you. And you mentioned, you talked earlier at the beginning about uh, how people see your passion. And I'm sure passion plays a big role in motivating you to continue wanting to do these trips. But I'm wondering um, what kind of support you have. Like, you mentioned how, um, you know, you weren't able to go on the South Africa trip. So I'm assuming mm-hmm. someone went in your place. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But uh, I guess just more generally, um, obviously you're not a one-man person and you have a lot of community support in terms of funding, but just like logistically in terms of making sure the chips are successful and the students are safe and all that, you know, what kind of support do you have in, in being able to, to pull that off? Yeah, sure. Uh, to, to various degrees, I very literally have my whole school community behind me or not behind me, but behind it, you know, behind Brownsville abroad. So that looks different ways at different times, you know, but your direct question about like the chaperoning, for example. So um, for international trips, uh, the Department of Education requires at least three chaperones for any groups of students up to 15. Mm. Um, So that's what we've done for each of our trips. 
And if I have a trip with 15 students, I can promise you I have, you know, I've, I've received 15 offers for chaperoning, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so we have to, you know, there's no shortage of that kind of support. Yeah. And I think people would also be a little bit, well, I guess one of the surprises of the trips has been how much the chaperoning is work. Mm-hmm. Um, these trips are not vacation. Um, and there's definitely, so just, you know, there's plenty of support in that regard. I've always got people who have my back in that, in that regard. Um, even in terms of the fundraising though, I usually have, there's a, there is a division of labor. I'm usually the person who's in charge of it and I come up with a lot of the ideas, but I'm definitely not the only person. So administrative support that looks like just a ton of access. My uh, administration, which is a principal and assistant principal, um, they make, to the fullest extent possible, it's an open door, it's suggestions, it's resources, it's connections. You know, it's many, many, a lot of, a lot of this is conversations, yeah. you know, again, because it's a program, right? So there's so much that we want to put together to make sure um, that students are getting a rich experience for several months, yeah. not just for the days of the trip. So if it's, you know, like my principal one time, she um, found out about a, a performance group um, from, oh, it was not South Africa, but it was a Southern African country. I can't remember which one, but um, she was like, hey, let's do a let's do a school wide event. Let's have them come in and, and boom, and we'll do this and, and it'll help to, you know, it, it'll help to inspire the trip and, and bring more awareness of the South Africa trip and all that. And, and boom, we did it. So. Um, all of the events that we do, as far as the planning and the coordination of those events, there's a ton of support in the school. So several times at several different points, we've mapped out, uh, you know, this is what the next six months looks like, you know, and then we'll meet next month and we'll go over that again. And we'll meet the next month and go over that again. So it's, it's lots and lots and lots of, uh, different kinds of support. Um, too much really to name, but I, but <laughs> I might, I'm, I might make it sound like it's all me or whatever, but it's more like, you know, I'm the, the person who got the ball rolling, mm-hmm. um, you know, had the inspiration and then made a, uh, made a pitch, you know, and was able to involve others. And, um, they pull me in, you know, this is the one thing that I've done professionally that it pulls, it pulls at me. And I think that that means that there's something very right about its purpose and its function and, and what's possible. And we've made mistakes along the way, but there's, it's really in the service of something very large, I think, yeah. uh, and very worth doing. So, you know, there's been plenty of, uh, there's plenty of support there. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. Cause I, I mean, I knew it wasn't just you, but when I mm-hmm. heard about it the first time a couple of years ago and, um, and was even, you know, looking up stuff and in preparation for our conversation today. It's like you're you're the face of it. And I was thinking, yeah, I guess if I was putting myself in your position. I'd be like, oh, that seems like a lot of pressure to be able to pull this off. So that's why I wanted yeah. to know about like what kind of support you had, you know. Yeah. Oh, the, and there's a ton of pressure. Yeah, that's that's I'll, I'll just say this. I'm very glad that it's the summer right now <laughs> because um, I'm, I am. Uh, gifting myself with a lot of rest this summer and a lot of relaxation and of course a little bit of work you know teacher every teacher you've ever known has done some kind of work over the summer even if they're not teaching summer school but for the most part i'm chilling that's you know it's well deserved Um, yeah you already talked a lot about your a lot of the funding methods that you try um you and your students try to uh be able to afford doing these trips. I'm wondering if you have any advice 
Well, one, do you have any advice for someone who's looking into doing a gap year? Um, and also, do you have any advice for someone who's looking to lead student group trips in a similar way that you have? Sure. Okay. So let's see. What would I advise for someone doing a gap year? What I'm what I'm thinking about right now is how different the way that I did it was from. I mean, I did it in a very um, unorthodox way. Mm. Um, but I, I guess I would say uh, tip number one would really just be be intentional about uh, varying the experience that you are having. Be intentional about what you are exposing yourself to and uh, where you're putting yourself in your talents and, 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 and so forth. Um, just really be open and be open to that next connection, that next link. Mm. Another way I would say that, and it may sound quite different, but I think it's, I think it's related is be adventurous. Mm. Yeah. For me, I had many of my richest moments and my richest or most amazing next steps when I would usually turn right and this particular moment, something told me to turn left. And I'm thinking, you know, about um, a, a very rich uh, friendship that I was able to make um, while I was in Barcelona. And it literally came from, I mean, it's the most mundane thing, but I was going to, I was walking past this uh, basketball court on my way back to the uh, apartment that I, the room that I was renting um, from someone. And I just saw a bunch of guys playing basketball on a court. And I stopped and I, you know, I, first of all, let's just say, okay, so I am six foot three. My last name is Jordan. And I am. <laughs> Terrible at basketball. I mean, I'm, I'm really just, I'm really horrible. So okay. <laughs> um, I just want to put that out there because I just, I just want to represent. I'm here to represent for everyone like me out there who, right? We're just <laughs> anyway. I mean, I used to one of the students that I used to tutor. <laughs> I would go and play basketball with them, you know, as a way of kind of connecting with them and everything. And he would just look me up and down, and he would say, "You're a waste of height." You know? Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's funny. We're we're still friends to this day, and it was not meant to be an insult. But you know, he was he just like yo waste the height, like man. You know, he was like five feet tall. He's like man, if I had your height, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so I stopped by this basketball court and I just went over to the guys and we started playing just a game of twenty one. Where you know, because there were three of us, so you couldn't really play teams. So we played twenty one. You know. We started talking a little bit and they wanted to know where I was from. And one of them was from Spain and the other guy was Russian. Like, isn't that random? Mm. And uh, me and the Russian guy, we started connecting on, on hip hop. The next thing I know, I would start, I was visiting him and his girlfriend and he was playing these albums from his collection. I couldn't believe some of the albums that this guy had. Like, how do you even know that this stuff exists? And, mm. you know, not just hip hop, but like a lot of the stuff that he had was very obscure and really good. And some stuff that I had never heard. I'd never heard music like that before and whatever. So that's one particular example. But when I say kind of like be adventurous, because I think one of the things that we frequently do uh, or many people frequently do when they travel is they bring we, we bring a lot of our old habits and, and uh, just kind of our old at home self and uh, allow yourself to be a different self um, a little yeah. bit. 
yeah, just to bring that to a close, I, that was the most rewarding, ex- uh, the most rewarding experiences that I had while I was there came from me allowing me to, allowing myself to be a different self. The second question was about uh, uh, other educators who want to uh, arrange trips like this. It's like right. that. Well, what I say to them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to say three things. The first thing, it is absolutely possible. Do it. Take the leap. You just have to. <laughs> so for anybody who has seen the Disney movie Luca uh, that came out recently, as I said, I have oh, a three-year-old son. Yeah. Yeah. See it. It's really good. Um, but one of the lessons I learned from having kids is like animated movies are always good. I don't know how they're so good. They're never that cool. There's always something in there for the adults. Right. Um, they're remarkably good. I always thought these movies were trash. I would never. I thought they were a waste of money. No, they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and my three-year-old insists on watching Luca every day now. So that's oh. the that's. <laughs> I know that's the vortex that we're caught in and stuck in right now, right? <laughs> So there are two character, two boys and a girl that are the main characters. These mm-hmm. kids, and they're really cool. And, all. and one of the boys um, is facing doubts, and whenever his doubts come up, the other kid tells him, "Just say, um, oh, now I'm forgetting it. Oh my God, what is it? Um, basically, oh, oh my God, I'm ruining this moment. Whatever." But he has a catchphrase <laughs> that he says to him, that's like he he calls his fear Bruno, and he tells Bruno to shut up, basically. Uh, yes. So like. My first piece of advice for other educators who are starting something like this is at the beginning, you'll be full of doubts. You'll have, I mean, literally, you'll have sleepless nights. And just if you are going to do it and if you have support, just tell Bruno to shut up and just keep uh, going ahead with it. So that's the first thing. Uh, that's the first thing that I advise. Yeah, that's good. Um and the second thing that I'm like, why can I not remember that quote? And we've literally seen this movie 20 times. All right. Uh, the second thing that I would advise is, oh, this is why I'm supposed to write things down. COVID brain is coming into play. Well, I guess I... You're doing fine. <laughs> yeah. So I guess I can come back to the second thing. Um, as far as the legit... Oh, I remember the second thing. So... You have to find ways to talk yourself down. You have to find ways to decrease your pressure and remember that you're not going to die. It's not going to kill you. Um, So for me, one of the ways that I did that very strategically is every time I encountered a person who did not think that we could be successful or to deal with my own fears and concerns about our project not succeeding, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to happen within the timeline that you initially set. Um, I really would have hated if we had to do this, but with each one of our trips, I always remember we always have had a backup plan. You know, what happens if you only have half the money? Well, it would kind of suck, yeah. but we would have to unregister every student. We would have to push that trip, you know, forward, or, or we would have to see who might be able to you know, go on the trip in the future. And we would have to, we would just have to push it back by a year. If it has to happen like that, look, maybe it's all for the better. Mm. It'll give us more runway. It'll give us more time to take off because if we keep trying to push this plane forward right now, it's just going to crash into, you know, off the end of the runway. Mm. Um, so that's the second thing. And um, the third thing that I would advise for um, other educators who would like to organize programs or trips um, like this is that huh, this is going to con- conflict with what I just said a moment ago. Mm-hmm. Um, even though you have to remember that it does not have to happen now, thing number three is it'll only work if the way that you live is that 
this has to happen. Like, this shall be. Mm. You have to have that kind of urgency behind it. Because as we, you know, I am a full-time teacher, of course, uh, which is, that's not a 40-hour-a-week job. Most teachers wish they only worked 40 hours a week mm-hmm. at teaching. And, you know, I'm also a husband. I'm also, father. you know, a father. Yeah. Uh, I'm also a gamer. I play PS4. And one of my favorite, you know, like I have a few hobbies. Mm-hmm. Um, I just got back into painting recently, and I need to sleep at least six hours a night. And yeah. all, those things already consume so much of my time. To do something else like this, it, it very literally is a part-time job on top of all of the other commitments that you have. Mm-hmm. So it only works if the way that you are about it is that it absolutely has to, it has to happen, it has to work, you have to have that kind of urgency. And then, you know, in the right kind of context, you'll have people who will provide you with the support. They'll pull you back when you're going too far in one direction. They'll keep you on your correct course. And they'll also do the work with you. And um, I know I, I used a lot of time for that before, but I, I really have to shout out um, the the staff at my school. I mean, like even um, I wrote an application for we uh, tried to get a particular grant. Um, they actually ended up choosing someone else. And <laughs> they kind of told us, well, you guys have already been successful at this. But, you know, mm. um, when it was time to write out that proposal, we sat down and did all of that together over the course of a few hours. You know, so it's. Um, but somebody's got to be like, this has to happen. Yeah. And if you can do that, and if you can be that, it, then it'll work. And if you can't do that, and you won't be that, you know, then it becomes, it's just a good idea or, you know, and something else that I've done, I guess this is kind of three B I could make this four, but it's a, it's a, it's a three B is don't let anyone diminish the vision. Mm, yeah. Um, whatever your vision is of it and whatever it is you have, you can contribute to the vision. You can, you know, support the vision. You can help to build the vision. We can build it bigger, but we can't build it smaller. We can't. Yeah. When I've had people who have wanted to, you know, just cut out the international part. No, that's no, that's what it is mm-hmm. where that's always and that's what it's going to be. You know, it, it has to be a, a large vision. And part of the reason I say that is I think that what attracts the community of support that we've been so fortunate to be able to attract is because of how large it is and just how much is possible from what we're doing yeah that that's that's what makes it work it works because it's big Mm. yeah that's that's so important i like how you phrase that in terms of not letting people um, diminish the vision that you already have set um that's really important and i appreciate all that advice you just gave um i'm sure that a lot of people will find it very um useful and encouraging so last question well, last two questions, because I thought I forgot one of them. But um, <laughs> first of all, where would you personally like to go in the world, like in the future at some point? Where else would you like to go personally? Um, mm-hmm. And then also, how can people keep up with you and support Brownsville abroad going forward? Um, yeah, so first question, um, I'm really amped about the chance to go to Ghana. Mm. Um, really, I'm really hoping that I get a chance to go on that trip, you know, crossing my fingers for that one. Uh, I accept, I absolutely accept that I do not get to go on all of our trips. That's life. Mm. And I get, and the trips still get to happen. So that's super cool. Super yeah. cool. Um, but yeah, that's where I want to go. 
Um, I haven't been to Spain since uh, we did our trip there in 2017. I would love, I would love now at this point, I really would love to take my family there and, and spend, you know, at least a week there. That would be super cool. Um, so those are two. Yeah. And then, okay, well, where can people find me or us or whatever? Um, so I am terrible at social media. <laughs> um, so this is like, I'm like, okay, maybe this can be like a re, you know, this can help me get like a refresh and a restart on this. You know, I just, I, I love Facebook, but of course that's very, very personal. That's your, like your actual people, right? You know, um, and I'm trying to do a little, I have an, I have an Instagram page. <laughs> um, I have a Twitter page. Twitter is the worst to me. Twitter makes no sense. I don't understand Twitter at all. It's pretty scary to me too, so I understand. <laughs> yeah, one of my goals for 2021 was like, you know, get used to IG. So I've done that. Now I got, damn, now I got to actually post stuff on there. Okay, I guess I will. <laughs> um, all right. If people want to um, contact me, I would suggest, I guess they could message me on Facebook. Uh, my name is Eric Jordan. And my profile picture, at least for the next little while, is going to be a, it's a green profile pic. Um, I got illustrated this year for the first time. Nice. Um, GoFundMe created a, um, uh, they created a series uh, called New York Cares. I believe that's the name of the campaign that they did. And they featured 10 different New Yorkers that have used GoFundMe for the benefit of others. And they chose to include me in that. And I, that, that's, wow, cool. Thank you. Yeah, that's um, they've done so much for us. They've done so much for us, you know, especially because most of our fundraising is online and you need a trusted campaign that people, you know, know is not going to like take their money and send it to Vegas. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, so people can find me on Facebook as Eric Jordan, E-R-I-C and green profile picture, because I'm sure there are many Eric Jordans in the world. I do have an Instagram. It is so dot they dot can dot fly. Uh, so, so they can fly and that's with dots in between. And I'm not going to give you my Twitter cause I don't even like, nah. understood. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, um, the, the school's travel club is F D A V I I underscore I C that's on IG. So and on Instagram, uh, we have a travel club. Everything on there is public students. I have, you know, students, I've gotten permission to share, um, images of students in their previous trips. Mm -hmm. So that's F D A V I I underscore I C is, uh, how they can find the travel club. Okay. And there it is. Yeah. So it's Eric Jordan on Facebook. So they can fly with, Dots in between on Instagram and then also F-D-A-V-I-I underscore I-C on Instagram. Mm -hmm. okay. Oh, but wait, there's more. So let me not. Wow. And as far as our GoFundMe, so we have a general um, GoFundMe page. So it's, it's just if you Google Brownsville abroad. Uh, you will find our page and it's as you would expect it to be spelled um, Brownsville Brown S V I L L E Brownsville abroad. And that'll take you to our GoFundMe uh, where people can make campaign donations. And I have to make 100% clear. Um, I do not receive a dime of anything that anyone donates. I do not receive a, you know, I have a job already. <laughs> um, I don't get no money from this. I don't need no money from this. So I just, yeah. you know, I want to make that clear. This does not benefit me personally. I am not the beneficiary. The beneficiary is the person at the school who manages the bank account. 100% of the funds go directly into the school's accounts. 
and all of it goes towards the trips. There is no overhead because, you know, we're a school, so anything anyone donates goes directly 100% to our trips and our activities. So um, GoFundMe.com slash Brownsville Abroad, or you can Google Brownsville Abroad. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so plenty of ways for people to keep up with all the amazing work that you're doing and also um, support Brownsville Abroad financially. So, yeah, that's mm-hmm. good. That's great. Well, thank you again so much for your time. It was wonderful getting to speak with you. I once again appreciate your patience. I don't know what was going on today, but I'm glad we were able to continue the conversation. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've been so so open and so uh, generous with the insight that you've shared, and I really appreciate that. And, um, yeah, I hope you have a great evening and and everything. Yeah, thank you so much. Much appreciated. Much appreciated. Yeah, I'll be in touch. Okay, thank you. Yes, you're very welcome. And um, yes, I will. Uh, you'll hear from me in no time. <laughs> all right, okay. cool. All right, take okay. care, Eric, and you have a great evening. All right. Thank you. You too. Bye. All right, y'all. There it is. Thanks to Eric for being such a wonderful guest, and I hope you like how this all turned out. For the rest of you listening, don't forget to follow this podcast at Young Gifted and Abroad on Instagram and Facebook and at YG Abroad on Twitter. And don't forget to check out guest profiles and resource lists on younggiftedandabroad.com. Also, if you enjoy what you've been hearing so far, then please continue listening to Young Gifted and Abroad wherever podcasts are. And you're welcome to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. And as always, if you have questions or comments to share, or if you yourself would like to be a guest on the show, then feel free to email me at younggiftedandabroad at gmail.com. So for the next episode, in two weeks, the guest is going to be someone who hails from Louisville, Kentucky, a city that's very close to my heart. And this person studied theater in London. So you can look forward to hearing all about that in two weeks. But until then, thank you so much for listening and talk to you next time.